COVID issue for all women. Hello, Jen here to tell you about this week's episode of The Sunday Chops. Today, September the 10th, is World Suicide Prevention Day. Preventable deaths by suicide remain the biggest killer of young people under the age of 35 in the UK, and those numbers are on the rise. The Samaritans is a charity that is keen to bring those numbers down, providing help and support to those in distress when they need it. Meanwhile, Suicide & Co, a relatively new charity, is there to provide support for those who have already been bereaved by suicide. I got on the Zoom to talk to CEO and co-founder of Suicide & Co, Amelia Wrighton. We chat about our own experiences of being bereaved by suicide, stigma, shame, and the ways that dealing with a bereavement by suicide specifically can be particularly tricky. I also spoke to Roxy McCarthy, a Samaritans volunteer, who told me about her experience of using the charity service herself during a time of particular need and later going on to become a volunteer after the death of her friend Jess by suicide. Whatever you're going through, help is available from the Samaritans and you can also get in touch with Suicide & Co if you've been bereaved by suicide or you know someone who has and you think they might benefit from some help. All of the details of how to contact those charities are in the show notes, so please do have a look at those. I hope you find today's podcast interesting or if you are going through something yourself, I hope you find it useful. I'm joined by co-founder of the charity Suicide & Co, Amelia Wrighton. Amelia, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. So, Amelia, I came aware of your charity a while ago, which is aimed at providing support to people who've been bereaved by suicide. And regular listeners to the podcast will know I lost my brother to suicide in 2004. I saw it and I thought that is something that I wish had been around in 2004. Can you tell us a little bit about the charity please? I'm so glad that you think that when you found us because that's exactly why we made it right and I also have lived experience of suicide loss. I lost my mum when I was 19 and back in 2011 and that was one of the core drivers, right? Um, Suicide & Co is there to provide support to those bereaved by suicide. Our kind of mission was to open the conversation around suicide-related grief and support those bereaved. Our main kind of focus is on service delivery. So we're not about awareness only, we are about actual services um, that people can access. So we have a counselling service Uh, Anyone over the age of 18 uh, living in England and Wales can access 12 sessions of counselling. It's delivered by qualified counsellors. It's completely free. You get an assessment up front. It's a real kind of like gold standard service. We also, to support that, have a helpline, which is open Monday to Friday. And that can provide, it's going through a bit of a change at the moment, but it can provide practical and emotional support. And then we have lots of resources online right everybody's grief journey is different it can be professional support as well as reading books listening to podcasts but it's hard to find ones out there that are specific to suicide related grief or uh, that kind of area so we have signposting on our website and to all of those kind of softer resources that we're now turning into an app that is launching in october 2023 (laughs) if anybody's listening to this um you know months down the line and that's essentially what we do. Um, we, we run it for a very small team. Um, we've got lots of volunteers and ambassadors behind us. Uh, we work with 23 counsellors. We're only three years old, so we've been growing incredibly quickly, delivering thousands of sessions. That's kind of us as an organisation in a nutshell, I'd say. 12 
counselling sessions for free. Yeah. Yeah. That is significantly more than you would get on the NHS in most yeah. cases. Like, I, I, I know that I have sought out counselling in the past, and this was a long time ago. This is way before the NHS was in the pickle it is in now. Although I would say they do have a slightly better mental health offering now than they did probably, mm-hmm. I don't know how old I was, this is probably about 12 years ago. They probably have a slightly better mental health offering now as awareness around mental health issues have grown. But I remember at the time when I did eventually seek out some counselling, many years after my brother had died, I was basically told, sorry, this sucks, but like you're just going to have to go private if you want any counselling, like mm-hmm. ever, basically. We can give you six sessions of CBT, but it doesn't sound like that's going to be very helpful to you given what you're dealing with or you're just going to have to go private. And private counselling is prohibitively expensive for a lot of people. So 12 12 sessions for free, that is genuinely a very generous offering. Where where do you get your funding from? Like, How how have you managed to drum that up in three years? That's incredible. We we fundraise like crazy, right? Like we just hit the eight hundred thousand mark in three years. Like you know, I spent and it's a lot of time fundraising, and it's a real mixture. I mean, our biggest area of fundraising comes from what we call community fundraising. So people running marathons, um, taking on challenges. We have one at the moment going on our thirty-four kilometer challenge. It's actually called our thirty-four k challenge, but it's people taking on thirty-four kilometers. On World Suicide Prevention Day, they've there's forty of them doing it, and they've raised twenty six grand already. Like it's our biggest one that we do. We sell merchandise, uh, we talk to corporates, we do events, and we apply to grants. And we kind of because we're so new, and we were born in COVID, so we didn't have an event for like the first like eighteen months. We just go for loads of different options really and we just work really really hard at it because we do know it's an expensive service. I mean, we pay our counselors. Most charity services will run off of trainee counsellors because trainee counsellors need to deliver hundreds of hours for free as part of their training. Yes, yeah. It's a brilliant model to then go and work with with um, charities. I wish we could do that. We don't choose to do that because of the complexity of the work. You know, we, we take people in who are going through significant trauma and not everyone, but that, that means that we want to have really qualified counsellors to deliver that work. So you are a co-founder along with Emma Morris Rowe and you both have experienced bereavement by suicide okay. um, separately. Both of you lost a parent. Emma lost her dad, right, to suicide. Yes. How did you guys come to find each other and, and set this charity up? I mean, it is a lovely story, really. I mean, we were at work, so we were working together. We both worked in advertising. We were selling cinema ad space. And uh, we were at this like industry event and we'd been there all day and we were like a bit bored. So we were like, let's go and have a glass of wine. And, you know, we'd worked together probably for about two or three months at the time. Had never really had a conversation about each other. And then over this glass of wine, we kind of opened up a bit more. Where do we live? You know, what are our families doing, et cetera. And it was Emma really who had noticed like all the similar behaviours that she does around sort of avoiding subjects around our parents or avoiding saying, well, my dad lives in Gloucestershire, but then just not saying my mum lives, you know. And she just had this feeling where she would say it was like a witchy feeling. And she asked the question like, when, you know, did mum pass? I said, yes. And then she said, mum passed by suicide. And I said, yes. Like nobody had really asked me that before ever, had like gone out and said it. 
And then that conversation kind of just changed everything. We connected, we like shared our frustrations and she'd been brewing the idea to do something in this space. And then the next time we were in the office and she was like, you know, I've thought of the name Suicide and Co. Um, as a kind of, you know, breaking down the stigma and reminding people that they always have company. And I was like, I'll do that with you. She didn't even ask me. <laughs> no, I was like, yes, I shall do that with you. <laughs> and then that was it, really. I mean, I say that the idea was like there. We did a big amount of research to look into what was being done. Because bear in mind, this was eight years after I'd lost my mom, nine years after Emma had lost her dad. And we didn't have any of that kind of legacy or in-memory uh, motivation or anything to kind of like distract us from our grief. And that's not like negating anyone. It's like so powerful. People do amazing things in the aftermath of grief that I just simply couldn't like do myself. But because we were coming at this quite a while down the line, we were looking at like what needs to be done, what are the options out there and where can we make the most impact? Um, and our research just showed us this glaring hole around suicide bereavement and importantly, the options that were accessible to people. And you're right, like counselling is prohibitively expensive for the majority and it's such a beneficial tool. I guess that's the other thing I didn't mention is for both me and Emma, counselling had been that moment that had been the biggest unlocker to our the rest of our grief journey for me it was a moment where before the point where I accessed counselling a year and a half into losing mummy like I hadn't realised that I was going to be able to heal mm. like the word heal just didn't resonate with me it made me feel like uh, this was the new me this dark sad like inside I could fake it but like ultimately I was always going to be this sad on the inside and that counseling was the thing that made me realize that's not the case so i mean i lost my brother 19 years ago now it'll be 20 years next year so obviously that is quite a long time and i was 21 when it happened he was 25 so when my brother died suicide was not something that people really talked about it was not yeah. something i did not know anyone else who had lost someone to suicide. Like one of my friends, Carrie Adloyd, in fact, uh, who I was at university with and it was sort of around when when this happened, had sort of said to me like, oh yeah, you know, like my mum had a friend who killed themselves and, you know, she Bang. said this about it kind of thing. But that was really like the only person who had said to me that they knew of someone that this had happened to kind of thing. But as time has gone on, similarly, I met someone at work, you know, some years later who mentioned that their brother had died by suicide and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, like, and you just, you come to realise that it is unfortunately far more commonplace than perhaps you're aware of. At the time that Stephen died, my brother, I was offered no counselling. Like no one in my family was offered no, any counselling. I think we were told like, you know, you could get some if you wanted to go and seek it out or whatever but there was nothing yeah. obvious that existed that we could access I wondered how I mean apart from obviously you guys do you think that is a similar picture now it depends what day you ask ask me the question because look we have come on like so far in terms of the ability to talk about it um firstly like the prevalent is pretty much always been the same. I mean, there hasn't been a decrease in suicide in like, you know, two decades. 
it is the biggest killer in you know men under 45 in men and women under 35 you know like it's a big issue thousands of people are affected by it i think that service provision has improved but we are still working in a postcode lottery so you mentioned there about a while back like the nhs i hear varying stories that every day some are like oh i just got no wait list and i get 12 sessions of this and others are like i've been on a wait list for 12 months and i only get cbt and it's six sessions you know it's complete postcode lottery depending on their local commissioners which is why we're a national organization because we wanted to like abolish that my gut my when I'm being an optimist I'm like god if I think about now when I lost mummy you know I was 19 I was all over like social whatever that was at the time the fact that somebody can you know google and find a website dedicated to this that looks alive and got people interacting with it all the time and you know has things going on and then they can go onto a social media channel and see that there are 7,000 people following this social media channel you know like it's I think a completely different message that we're imparting to people right at the start, which is you have permission to grieve. That is a fundamental thing that has to change. You know, I just didn't feel like I had permission to grieve, really. I felt like I could do grieving, but I really need to just like buck up, carry on, don't let this define me. And I think now we've we've gone to the other side and we are making people feel like they have permission to grieve. But I think it's still nowhere near where it needs to be i hear stories pretty much every week it tends to be people living within rural communities or uh you know communities where they've got very strong religious beliefs or things like that where they're feeling extremely isolated from their communities and they are feeling extremely isolated from support and my core belief is that you know when you have a trauma when you have an issue that you do not tend to it will deteriorate your mental health. And that mental health deterioration will then need to be dealt with at some point. And that is what we are there to do. Grief and traumatic grief like this can, of course, deteriorate your mental health. We want to be there in that moment when that grief is at its peak to be able to provide access, support, community, normalization, so that it doesn't further deteriorate your own mental health. That's the whole point. It's also, you know, I'm sure you feel a bit like it sometimes on LinkedIn and Instagram. And, you know, we're in an echo chamber. I see what's in my algorithm and I see other mental health charities and other suicide prevention charities. I was having dinner with somebody yesterday who's one of my best friends. She's known I've done the charity for three years and she's been to events. She's volunteered at places. And I said, well, you know, I mean, like, it's great. It's a papyrus. They're doing incredibly who papyrus who are papyrus what who are papyrus how do you not know who papyrus are in my head in my sector everybody knows who papyrus are everybody knows if you're suicidal you could call the samaritans text shout call papyrus call calm but they don't know that no they know samaritans and that's pretty much it and you know that's why i think it's it's a good reminder we've made great progress we have got hell of a long way to go to get to a stage where people are accessing timely and effective support at the moment when it can really make a difference. So one of the things that I experienced when I lost my brother, partly to do with the fact that it just wasn't something that people talked about at the time. And I think this is definitely something that stayed with me a little bit. I don't talk about it loads. I have spoken about it on the podcast. I've written a couple of articles about it, but I don't talk about it that much. 
And I think one of the reasons for that is I felt really quite an intense sense of shame, actually, at yeah. the time. So obviously there's the guilt that goes with suicide, you know, that yeah. you feel that somehow you should have known, you should have been able to do something, you should have been able to prevent this situation from occurring, okay. which is obviously not true. But it, you mm. know, I think that is a common thing that most Very people... Common. Everyone feels it, yeah. But the other thing that I really felt was shame. So shame that, you know, maybe my family was a bit crap if we hadn't sort of noticed yeah. what was going on. But also kind of shame of like, are people going to think that maybe I'm like that? Because, you know, mental health issues can run in families or are people going to think that I'm sort of damaged by this oh. experience and truly you know is, is she going to be like you know dead brother girl or whatever do you know what I mean so I think yeah, I really yeah. felt a lot of that I wondered if you could talk a little bit about for a start is that a sort of common experience of people who are Very. bereaved by suicide and also what are the other kind of the things that make bereavement by suicide sort of quite specific and different from other t- kinds of bereavement yeah, 100%. So yes, it's completely normal, right? And like, I am not like an expert on shame, like Brennan Brown, my ultimate hero. But, you know, I, for my opinion, like I think it falls for a couple of reasons. It's guilt manifesting, you know, like guilt builds to like self-hatred of like, I wish I'd done more. Why didn't I do? Or why didn't I know this? Or, you know, or what happens if I had answered the phone or whatever? And that manifests as like ashamed because you've got self-hatred there that feels like shameful and I think it's also the the stigma like it's that environment of like if you feel uncomfortable talking about it I'm ashamed to bring it up I'm ashamed mm. to be associated with it if you don't feel if I factually know this is going to make you awkward which it is then I feel ashamed to be associated with that 100% and I think it's that is something we can actively lessen like it is and I think you feel less shame when you realize 7,000 people are following this social media channel or people feel shame about being in counseling what Mm. that's like saying I've got a cut uh I'm not gonna put plaster on it because uh just gonna let it bleed out and you know it's a bit bit embarrassing if I got some help for that cut but you know I don't want to like put a plaster on it it's just bizarre but I think it's really common and you know very present I think that look when we talk about the specificities of suicide related grief firstly I want to caveat with the fact that like we always say I always say in presentations like there's no grief olympics you know we can say people can feel like some are worse than others but really like there's not every situation is Mm -hmm. so unique I really believe in the leaning in and out of specificities so it's really powerful to be like there are really specific aspects of suicide related grief one is like unanswered questions but also to recognize that actually if you lose someone to accident or uh, terrorism there's also unanswered questions there and being able to connect with that person over those things builds less isolation and more connection right because i think that some or some people um, may have lost a partner to suicide what they really want to connect with in that moment is the fact that they're a widow well, actually, that is trumping the, the mode of death in that moment, right? So being able to like look at the specificities and lean in and out of connection is really important because I think when people go like, I'm bereaved by suicide, it's worse than when you've lost a grandpa. It's worse when you've lost someone to cancer, whatever it is, they can really isolate themselves in that perspective and not connect. And equally vice versa, when people go, oh God, I've 
lost two people, but it was to natural causes. I don't feel like I can connect with someone that's lost a child's suicide. Well, no, you can, because do you both resonate in the sadness? Do you both resonate in the missing? Yes, you do. So, you know, but I think the aspect that I think goes unsaid a lot that's really specific to suicide-related grief is the forced journey that you have to go on through education of what mental health and suicide is. As part of your healing, you have to understand what suicide is, how it affects us, how common it is. Why would anybody want to know that there are six and a half thousand people that die by suicide each year? Why would anybody want to know that it's the biggest killer for people under 35? It's a really horrible thing to be faced with, right? But when you lose someone to suicide, part of the journey of understanding more about mental health how it's an illness, how it can affect them, how they can get into a tunnel vision of suicidality. That's a really unique aspect that you have to go on to. And I think that that is a challenging path of education to go down. So like people's awareness of like mental health and what would be good to have in like place to support your mental health, when to talk about your feelings, all of that type of thing, as well as like suicide prevention as a sector. I think people are, are, a lot of people are affronted with it who've never dealt with it before. Like you hear a lot yes, of parents yeah. who've lost kids going, well, I had no idea that yeah. this was killing more school children than anything else. And I had no idea that you were supposed to ask twice and look for these signs. Why didn't anyone tell me? Hmm. And you're sort of forced to go on that big education, which is really overwhelming. When this happened to me, I remember we were all like, this is like something that happens on Hollyoaks. This isn't something that happens to actual yeah. real life people. This doesn't yeah. happen, but it does. And it happens, as yeah. we said, unfortunately, yeah. far too often. So thank you very much for doing what you're doing. It's, you know, it's fantastic. Like I said, I wish something like this had existed 19, 20 years ago. Can you tell us how we can support Suicide & Co if we would like to do that? Yes, absolutely. Well, the first thing I would say is like join... Our community so follow us on social uh sign up to our newsletter if you're interested <laughs> in the cause that is the best way to kind of keep in touch with us and the bigger the community looks and grows the less alone people feel and the more kind of reassured um that they feel those kind of like feelings that we spoke about like shame on our website you'll find loads of information of how to donate how to fundraise for us how to volunteer how to advocate and you can even shop our products. We have loads of amazing products that people should want to wear and buy anyway, hopefully. All of the revenue goes towards supporting those grief by suicide. So I think those would be the key ways. But the other, the last thing I'd say just as like a plea is if you know anyone who is bereaved by suicide and you're nervous of whether to introduce them to the charity, do it. You're never going to offend them. You're never going to upset them. It could be great. I'll follow them on social cool not for me right now or it could be oh my god I had no idea there was a charity that was delivering 12 sessions of counseling or had a helpline because grief isn't linear someone could be struggling 20 years down the line 10 years down the line two years so if you know anyone it's a really good thing to do just to pass on the message heard them on a podcast you might be interested done so what is your website and, and what is your your yes. social handles? It's Suicide and Co. So the A-N-D is written for our handle and our website. So our website suicideandco.org um, and our handle Suicide and Co. Even though we've got an ampersand in the logo, it's A-N-D online. Brilliant. Amelia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. 
I am joined by Samaritan's volunteer, Roxy McCarthy. Roxy, thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You have been a Samaritan's volunteer for a while now. How how long have you been involved and, and what was it that sort of prompted your involvement with the Samaritans? Yes, that's a big question. So I joined as a Samaritan volunteer. It'll be back in 20, 2021. So yeah, I've been a Samaritan volunteer for quite a while now. Um, the, the reason I decided to volunteer, probably a number of reasons, like going back to when I was going through a difficult time, I actually rang the Samaritans myself and they supported me alongside, alongside a counsellor. And then in 2020, one of my friends, Jess, she unfortunately took her own life during the lockdown. And it was a, it was a, yeah, just the first, well, not the first time suicide has kind of touched my life. I mean, my birth father's also taken his own life. I didn't know him very well. And that was the first time suicide had kind of come into my life. And then losing my friend to suicide was a huge loss and something that you know, very uncut, like very complicated and unsure. And then, you know, when you stand by the gravesite of a friend that's the same age as you, beautiful, talented, got a whole life ahead of her, and you just, I just couldn't not do anything more. And that led me on to, I don't know if anybody, anybody knows me, um, I've done, I did a small campaign which was mental health and addresses and health for 31 days of December in 2020, sharing my own experiences, talking about suicide, talking about mental health. And I think because I'd started to have those conversations, put content out there, Samaritans was kind of pushed to me as a resource. And I think coming out of 2020 into 2021, I just really thought, actually, I think I'm in a, in a good position to be able to help others and help, you know, if that could have been my friend Jess on the other end of that line and I could have helped her I think that was one of my things that really helped me to almost come to terms with that lot and also to help other people going forward. It's obviously quite personal to you this particular cause so I've been in touch with the Samaritans for many years done a bit of fundraising for them etc etc but I've never kind of stepped up to be a Samaritans volunteer for a couple of reasons. For for one, I've sort of worried that actually it is a bit too personal to me. And two, that I know the the sort of idea behind the Samaritans is that you don't offer advice, you listen. You're there to listen to the person that's called in. And I think I would find that really hard not to you know, not to tell them what I thought about the situation. Can you tell me a little bit more about what it's like actually being a Samaritan's volunteer and, and you know, the, the kind of support that you provide people? I kind of went into Samaritan's with that exact feeling mm. and almost an, another feeling of, am I actually going to have time to commit to doing, you know, two uh, one shift a week because it's a busy life and it's obviously voluntary and you have to volunteer once a week. But I just thought, I put myself, my, my hat in the ring and I started doing the training. And as I started to do the training and learning more, about different mental health and learning about listening. I thought I was a good listener until I joined Samaritan. And then I, I learned the, the art of listening. And it just, as I went through the training, it just almost cemented why I wanted to do it. And I wanted to be there for people in a difficult time. And I think now being on the phones for, well, it's nearly coming up to, to two years, isn't it? I've been a volunteer. You, you feel in quite a privileged and honoured position that people ring 
and they're talking to you about things that they haven't necessarily shared with anybody else and you can be that person to just be there with them you know get come down to where they're at sit with them listen and just and be there for them and I think what surprised me about being a volunteer is that just being on that on the phone and just giving that person that space to be heard and to air things that they might not have said before to anybody it just is it feels a privilege and an honor and a lot of the calls they they do end positively that people they want to they don't want to end their own lives they want they just wanted the pain to end and they come away with thinking actually there's there is hope and that's i think those calls you know they, they sit with you as okay but i've actually helped that person and that just that just helps me especially if i just think that could have been my friend on the end of the phone and if she'd have left with a little bit of hope then you know it could have been it could have ended differently or it could have been different there's a sort of expression that i came to hear in the last couple of years that i thought was really interesting um which i'm not sure how i feel about the expression but i think it's an interesting point it's called toxic positivity right where we as people like we want to fix things for other people we want to find solutions for them so they come to us with mm. with problems maybe and we're there and we're like, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? Blah, blah, blah. And sometimes people don't actually want solutions. They just want to be heard. They just want like the opportunity to say what they feel, get it off their chest. What, what do you think the value is in kind of providing that listening service to people who, who find the Samaritans in distress? I think, it, like you say, it gives them that it gives them that space not to get that advice and I think if somebody was to talk about these difficult things around suicide or suicidal thoughts you know there's a lot of people we we go through difficult times and there, there could be times where you you've emotions are high and they're really overwhelming and you do that does lead to suicidal thoughts but like the Samaritans are there to support and find a way through without giving the advice I know people if they were to speak to a friend or a family, they, they they would want to give advice and they would want to say, you know, oh, don't do that or, you know, how can I help you not to feel that way? Whereas sometimes just, just talking about that and just really sitting with it and processing it and talking it through with someone that feels comfortable to talk about suicide, feels talk, comfortable to talk about really difficult things around mental health. I think that is it's really quite powerful and that's what I've seen as a volunteer on the end of the phone, the power of just creating that space for that person to feel heard. There are a million different reasons why people would contact the Samaritans, and, and I guess that's sort of the point I'm, I'm driving at here, really. But I wondered if you could give me like a sort of overview of the kinds of reasons people cite for calling Samaritans. Like, what, what are the kind of pressures that people are facing that are leading to these calls? So Samaritans, there is an emotional support service. So anything great or small, I think a lot of people do see us as a suicide helpline, but actually we're there to support people through a difficult time, whether that's suicide, self-harm, bereavement, loneliness, uh, family problems, relationship problems. That's just, I guess, to, to name a few of the things that people do call about. You got involved with Samaritans because you called Samaritans yourself previously I wondered what was that experience for you like calling the Samaritans what kind of support did you get and how were you able to turn things around for yourself 
I rang the Samaritans when I lost my granddad in 2017. My granddad was like my dad and my granddad in one. I mean, this is going back seven years now. And I I just really struggled. I'd been travelling the world and I came home. My granddad had got cancer and we lost him six months later. And I just, it was almost like my world had crashed down around me and I was trying to be strong for my family and trying to, you know, pretend that I was okay. And deep down, I, I knew I wasn't okay. And there was a few times where I I thought, I can't do this. I need to speak to someone, but I didn't want to speak to anyone. I didn't want to worry anyone. And I'd, I'd actually thought about the Samaritan, ringing Samaritans quite a few times. And on the occasion that I did actually pick up the phone to Samaritan, I felt like I wasn't maybe worthy of that call, like I wasn't bad enough or I wasn't in a, a distressing situation enough to, to, ring the, to ring the Samaritans. But just having that space just to say how exactly I was feeling, talk about those feelings that were going on inside and just kind of lay everything out on the table. And I spoke about this recently and I, I genuinely look back now and think that that call was quite life-changing because it put my life into perspective, how I was feeling, and it made me realise that it's it's not that I didn't want to be here and I just wanted that like the, the feeling of the pain of, of losing somebody so important to me I just wanted them to go away and that kick started me into going to counselling and being able to get that support to move me through and get me back on track and I, I look back now you know I've lived my life but, you know, I don't think I would change much about my life and it's led me to work for a mental health and wellbeing platform so I, like, I can almost take my own experiences and really push them and to support other people just it shocks people but I mean people always need to know that that you know even the, the people who look the brightest and, and are the we all struggle we all go through difficult times and there's someone there 20,000 Samaritan volunteers there if, if someone needs to talk to somebody when you got in touch with the Samaritans yourself you felt like you weren't worthy or maybe not bad enough do you get a lot of people who phone who are kind of like, oh, you know, you probably got, like, people to talk to who are in a worse situation than me, like, I probably shouldn't be taking up your time. Do you find that a lot of people present in that way? Yeah, a little bit of that. And even, and often people that don't really know, at the start, they don't really know what to say. They, they know they, you know, they're ringing Samaritans, but then they could be emotional or not really sure how to even start the conversation. But I think that's where... Samaritans are amazing and all the volunteers, you know, available twenty four seven to listen to these people will just give the give you the space to say what you need to say and, you know, encouragement to, to open up in that call. What would your advice be to someone who was struggling with something in their life is causing them distress at the moment? And also what would your advice be to someone who maybe suspects that, as you said before, you never know what someone else is going through. But if you suspect that maybe you're a friend or family member or someone close to you is struggling a bit or feeling depressed or feeling down, what would your advice be to that person to sort of help help them out or to help themselves out? I think my advice would be that there's there's always somebody there. And to, you know, I was in a very difficult place and I hesitated to reach out because I was unsure and I didn't feel like I was worthy of, of having that, that space or I didn't know whether it was the right thing to do but you know just to, to take that step because it can it can change your life and just opening up to you know a Samaritan or to a friend 
friend or to somebody you know somebody that is is close to you or you know or even a, a Samaritan that somebody's not close to you a stranger that you can be really open and really honest because they'll give you that space to to talk about the things that might be that might be troubling you and there, there always is hope there's there's a lot of support out there i know i now work for a company called jack just ask a question jack.org and that's a, a platform that's got a lot of information on there from clinical experts to people with lived experience you know use that as a resource to go and see you know someone might be on that platform that's going through something that you're going through at the moment you'll be able to resonate get that information get that inspiration get that hope to you know that tomorrow is going to be a better day and if tomorrow's not a better day you know the day after might be a better day and just to keep that hope and things will get better i was in that dark place and things did get better and i know there'll be other difficult times to come in my life and i do feel like you can never prepare for difficult times or you know things that happen or mental health concerns or you just can't prepare, but there is hope of better days. Yeah, I think that's the the key point, isn't it? That however you feel right now, it might feel like a lot, it might feel overwhelming, but you're not going to feel like that forever. And the sooner you yeah. take that first step, the sooner you can get on the road to feeling better. Absolutely. So I know one of the things that Samaritans are trying to do today on World Suicide Prevention Day is to highlight the fact that if you're worried about someone that you're close to, often we kind of frame things in ways like, oh, how are you doing today? Are you all right? Blah, blah, blah. And one of the points that Samaritans are trying to push today is that you shouldn't shy away from asking someone if they feel suicidal. It's okay to actually ask that question. Roxy, I wondered if you had any sort of perspective on that as someone who regularly talks to people in distress who may be feeling suicidal. Yeah, and, and actually, before starting Samaritans, that was probably a word that I did probably shy away from, probably because of my own experiences, because I didn't feel necessarily comfortable with with that word and, and what it meant and, and maybe the conversations that might follow after that. But, you know, asking if someone is suicidal won't make things worse. It could actually save a life and it could actually open up that conversation with a friend or a family member or a colleague to you know feel okay that they might be feeling that way and that could be then when you could you know, point them in the direction of the samaritans or just have that give them that space to have that open honest conversation but you know asking that question are you suicidal won't make things worse and i encourage that if you are talking to someone and you want and you've got that question in your head thinking you know well that that does sound like they could be suicidal don't be afraid to ask that question Roxy, how can people get in touch with the Samaritans if they need to? So if you want to contact the Samaritans, you are available on web chat, email or phone. Uh, you can contact us on 116-123 and we are available 24-7, day and night. Obviously, the Samaritans is dependent on the kind donations of people. So you can do that if you if you want to chip the Samaritans a couple of quid. You can find them samaritans.org. And also, I guess you're always on the lookout for new volunteers. So there's information on the website as well about how to volunteer for the Samaritans. If you want to join Roxy and thousands of others like her. And Roxy, thank you so much, A, for volunteering. It's a really incredible thing that you guys do. And B, for chatting to me today. I know it's not always easy to talk about these things, but I'm sure that 
there will be lots of people listening who will take some comfort from what you've said to me today. Thanks, Jen, for having me. Standard Issue for All Women.